So throughout the Gospels, perhaps especially the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's a, an eyewitness account and then a second-hand account and then a, a journalist's account of the life of Christ, um, Jesus describes himself in implication and in story and in direct statements as a king. We've been looking over the last couple of weeks at stories he told um, where he described what's available to you and to me as a kingdom, which implies that he is a king. And yet, when he rose from the dead, and even before that, he did not take over a monarchy in any way that we would normally assess it. He didn't take over politically or uh, militarily or anything else. And so, if we continue to call him a king, what we learn on Easter Sunday is that he is in fact a king over sin and death which means that the good news of Jesus Christ is that God loves you and he likes you. The most theologically accurate way to say that, I think, is he loves you because he is he and you are you. But sin is a problem and and therefore he had to send his son who lived without sin to take the entire wrath of God on himself so that you and I can be back in relationship with him. And wrath is like an uncool word. And yet we see it around the world and we wonder what's to be done about it. In that sense, we're thankful that God indeed judges evil and injustice and abuse, violence. So throughout the parables, Jesus implies and teaches and says that he's a king. In John chapter 3, he says, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom. So what's the kingdom? The kingdom is the, the with God life. The parables that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks tell us that you and I become most fully ourselves when we trust him with our life and with our decision. story about us where we're bred. We don't become bred without trusting him. There's one where we can become a tree. We're not. And that's through trusting him. Uh, Do you like kings? Like, I don't think we like kings. I think we're nervous about that. We're pretty comfortable with representative democracy. We understand that kings get, like, exclusive allegiance. Any Hamilton fans? King George III, you know? I don't know if if you've listened to the music, but his, his songs are pretty funny. He does this little dance that I'm thinking about recreating, but I'm not going to. And, and, and I think that shows what we think about kings. Like, we understand the allegiance part, but we're nervous that kings are selfish. So we hear Jesus call himself a king. We're like, okay, fine. We, he's talking about allegiance, but, but is he going to be selfish? Like, the, like kings we worry about. And throughout the story of the gospel, there's this woman that Jesus meets when he just needs a glass of water because he was tired. They talk about her very rough Story and he's so kind to her, not avoiding truth, but so kind. There's a story, you think the Bible's boring, there's a story in John chapter 8 where religious leaders, men kind of like me, frankly, drag a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. It's not a euphemism for anything, that's how it happened. Jesus talks them out of putting her to death and is so kind to her. Jesus allowed this woman with his terrible reputation to wash his feet, and you're like, that sounds actually uncomfortably kingly. Then he washed the feet of his disciples. And so I'm trying to help us in our imaginations remember the fact that even those who do not like Jesus, don't want to have anything to do with the Christian faith, would not look at his life and say, that man was selfish. Today, what we celebrate, what we indeed celebrate every Sunday, but give a little more emphasis on today, is that he is risen. risen 
The king is risen, the king over sin and death. And that part probably doesn't surprise you if you've been to church on Easter before, but the text that I chose today might. This is my nervous look. Um, The reason I chose it is because there are two ways that you and I run from the Father heart of God. Years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I had the kids pair up and they race against each other in the parking lot. It's probably very unsafe. And uh, our youth ministry is very safe, but at the time mine was not. And I just had them run and they didn't know what they were doing. And it was kind of fun and it kind of wasn't fun. Like running is only fun when you're young and can do that without pain. And then I just had them huddle up and we, it was a two-minute devotional based on the text I'm going to use today. I said there are two ways that you and I run from God and one way you're really familiar with. That's by just being like, see a God, I'm going to do wild living. There's another way that we run from God. And it's by believing what he longs for is our duty. It's by believing that what he purchased for you and I on the cross and assured us the power of through the resurrection is diligent, miserable religiousness. The risen king is not only the king over sin and death, he is the king who frees us from religion. Religion is a word that in the Bible is used back and forth. Sometimes the book of James describes it positively as when we care for the least of these. But Jesus regularly defines it quite negatively. One of the weirdest things about reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially is Jesus is a Jewish man who's regularly pushing back on men like me because they're implying... The point of God's existence is that you and I become miserable religious people. And we get weighed down by duty and obedience. And and obedience is a good thing as a response of love. Not because God requires it. You know what God requires of you? Nothing. One of the weirdest things about Christians is that we don't only repent of our sin, we repent of our good deeds. Because we know they get us nowhere. But because of the work of Christ, we're called sons and daughters of the King. The risen King frees us not into nothing. I'm a a big fan of culture. I'm from the uh, Reformed tradition theologically and Presbyterian, which means like we're cool with culture. We think Jesus is redeeming it. I love art and Music and films and TV and architecture, and I don't understand any of them, but I like them all somewhat. But one thing I think our culture gets wrong is its definition of freedom. In in, uh, television shows and commercials, it's implied that freedom is just responsible or uh, lack of responsibility. Wouldn't that be so much fun if we just didn't have any responsibility? And on our tired days, yes, that's what we want. But that's not really what we want, and that's not really what freedom is. Jesus describes freedom as having joy that transcends any circumstance. Peace that can actually make it through any time. And righteousness, knowing how to live. He frees us into a life of those things. But to do that, we have to learn how religiously wired we are. The king left us a story, and I believe this story is the key to your joy and to mine. I believe this story is the key to the joy that should accompany the risen Christ. We like to say he is risen, 
But there's a reason that doesn't fill us with joy on a day-to-day basis. And I believe it's because we're not aware always of how religious we are. I got a haircut on Thursday. Did that for you. You're welcome. My hair looks like a Q-tip if I don't get it cut every four weeks. Not a white, a brown Q-tip. doesn't turn white. But. And I was talking with a woman who cuts my hair, and she started talking about the Ten Commandments, which was fun because she can only remember three of them, which is like most of us. And then she said, you know why I haven't been to church in decades is because I feel like I have to watch my language when I'm in church. That was the first thing she said. That's how we're known. When I go there, I have to talk differently. Is that a sign of joy? And then she said, but it does seem like followers of Jesus are able to, to, to handle adversity and suffering in their life. And I'm like, you're ruining my illustration for church by saying that. Like, I didn't say that out loud. I was just thinking in my head. Like, if she had just said the thing about watching her language, I'd be like, it's a perfect illustration. How are we known... I'm afraid that we're known as miserable people of duty and not people of joy, and yet the flowers are about the new life purchased for us by the work of Christ, not by our own work. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. A story I believe many of us are familiar with because we grew up in Sunday school and a story that if you're like me, you did not understand growing up because it was taught to you the wrong way. I'm going to double down on that and it's just a minute. Bear with me. And he said there was a man who had two sons. That's interesting. That's not what the heading in my Bible says. Hmm. We'll come back to that. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. How many of you are familiar with that story? What was it called growing up? That's wrong. That's not what Jesus called it. I'm serious. If you want, I have three pins up here. If you're willing, I would encourage you to either write an S at the end of the title if it says prodigal son or cross it out and say the story of the running father because you know those headings are not part of the text those headings are to help you and I find our way to the story 
Jesus called it the parable of two sons. And when I heard it in Sunday school, I heard about reckless living. And you're like, great, the pastor's going to tell me not to drink too much. Fine. Listen to verse 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And then he went and started dancing and eating the food. Nope, that's not what the text says. And he said, the servant said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours came, when this son of yours came, can't even call him his name, or my brother, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I, is mine is yours, and it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the brother went to the party and it was all okay. It's not in the text. I find this amazing. 2,000 years later, this story is still compelling. This story still has, in just three minutes or however long it took me to read it, it has moments of great tension. And where's the greater tension? If you're just thinking about it as a story, forget what we all learned growing up that we shouldn't drink or smoke. Like, that's pretty much what it means to be a Christian. Just for a second, think about the story as it stands. Where's the tension? There is some tension with the younger son, and there's an incredibly greater tension with the older son. And the most tension is in the part of the story that we don't know, which is whether he went to the party. So I know you have brunch plans, but I've got to be honest, that was just my introduction. Um, <laughs> we, we will get you out of here on time. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us as we consider the cross and the empty tomb to understand and believe and to know and live in light of the fact that you have freed us from our irreligious tendencies and our religious tendencies into joy. Help. Amen. The risen king frees us from religion, which, if you're comfortable calling it, that's what I'm calling what's happening in verses 25 through 32, which oppresses. Can you picture the older son in these verses? In verse 25, he's in the right place where he probably was every day. Many of us came to faith as kids and we know how important it is to be in the right place, both literally and metaphorically. Don't go to the wrong place, go to the right place. Then you're doing the right thing for the right reasons and everything will be okay. It's not doing it because it was wise and because he loved his father and was happy to serve but he's definitely in the right place. Verse 26, he's suspicious of joy. Do you ever find yourself suspicious of joy? 
think you and I have a, have a tendency, what the Bible would call our flesh, gives us this tendency to be suspicious of other people's joy. I remember growing up, uh, the area that I grew up in, let's call it Oklahoma because that's where it was, um, there were people that were suspicious of dancing because what could happen if people were to dance near each other? And that question is actually a good question, but some amount of the suspiciousness is a religious sickness or we're suspicious of joy. I think the irreligious version, the people I would meet in college, I was a little sheltered as a teenager, so in college met the people that couldn't dance without just a few or many, many, many drinks. It's a different kind of sadness. We'll talk about the younger son next week and his way of running away from God by being just like, see ya, I'm going to do all the wild stuff. But look at the older son in verse 26. He's standing at a distance, suspicious of joy. In verse 27, the servant starts telling the brother, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Can you just picture the older brother? Is he tallying the number of strikes against his dad already? You and I have a little bit of older brother in us at least. Some of you have totally squashed it. Most of us have a little bit of judgmental, cynical religiousness in us. Are we just keeping score at that point? When other people get good news, sometimes we respond poorly internally. And some of that's because you and I see injustice. You know, if you're passed over at your workplace for a promotion and you deserve that promotion, there's a, there's a point where that's unjust. But then there's a point where we're like still mad and it's been like six years. What Jesus is describing in Luke 15 is that that's a spiritual sickness where you are blocked from another person's joy because of your expectation of God. Let me say it another way. In the back of your mind, in your semi-conscious or subconscious self, you feel like God is holding out on you. That's the older brother in verse 27. He's standing there confident that his little brother didn't deserve this because he didn't, by the way. You're like, right, I'm on his side. But what's the response to that? Our sense of duty and right and wrong and our misunderstanding of God can lead us to a place of sheer misery. I believe when Jesus told this story, it was confusing. And after he rose from the dead, they were like, Oh, we not only get eternal life, we're freed into joy today? Which is why I believe this is the key for you and I to connect the empty tomb which we believe in and say in creeds that we believe accomplished for us all the work necessary for you and I to be with God forever and yet we don't have much joy on Tuesdays and it's because of our religiousness. Look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. So he's giving the silent treatment to the servant and to his brother and to his father. His father comes out and treated him. And I know that you, none of us would ever give the silent treatment to people because we're more mature relationally than that. But that's what we do in our religiousness. We're so angry and cynical. Not just about what happened at your job or with your family. 
but also because we're believing the same lie that Adam and Eve were convinced of in the garden, which is that God is holding out on us. It's natural to believe that in a broken world. And it's toxic to your soul and it blocks your joy, blocks your ability to see the running father, blocks your ability to love neighbor and delight in their successes. It blocks even your ability to love yourself. If you had to decide, does the older brother seem to like himself? I don't think so. Why? Because he's being oppressed by his misunderstanding of the father. He believes what the father requires of him is duty and obedience just in and of themselves. Duty and obedience are good things as a response of love. Duty and obedience in and of themselves just get us to miserable religion. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You know when you come home from work and you sit down and you just start saying I like a hundred times in a row? And you were probably treated at least mediocrely, if not poorly that day. But that, that, that I, 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 they, 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 I didn't, that's our tendency towards religiousness that blocks our joy. And you're like, fine, I just won't say it. No, that's not the good news. And embedded in this is some bad news, by the way. Embedded in what I'm implying and what I'm saying is you and I in an obscenely broken world are entitled to very, very little, if anything. We want this life, we want this family, we want these things, we want this health, we want this hair, we want this body and... The world is subject to decay. And you and I are not entitled to those things. And those of you that have suffered are thankful that I'm being honest. Those of you that have not suffered been like, I'm just going to go to brunch. This is not fun. Like, church is not fun today. I um, really like boats. And you're like, is that in a text? Why are we talking about boats? As my daughter brought up earlier, we saw an alligator. We got to go to Florida for a vacation. We saw an alligator. They named it Dave Carl. Um, they are my children. And we kept seeing these boats where we'd go to eat. There were boats. Small boats, big boats, because it's on the intercoastal waterways near the Gulf of Mexico and places where small boats can go. And I remember we ate, ate uh, a meal near this marina twice. There were manatees. Have you ever seen a manatee? Such a cool name, but it's like this large cow potato that just floats. <laughs> and that's not in my notes. I don't know why I brought it up. But I'd look at these boats and I'd start wondering, like, how big does a boat have to be to go all the way to the Gulf of Mexico? Is that boat so big that it can just go around the world? And in the back of my mind, I'm sort of like, how come I don't have a boat? In the way back of my mind, I'm like, I wonder if the boat owner deserves the boat as much as I deserve the boat. So what's happening in the way back of my mind is God's kind of holding out on me. And the proof that he's holding out on me is that I don't have a boat. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins... And that the empty tomb proves to us that he is who he says he is. 
then we actually can never believe he's holding out on us. So you know what I started doing? I started reminding myself that he loves me. In my head, I didn't want the boat owners to think I was weird. Um, In my head, I start reminding myself that he loves me. That sin is a big deal and therein comes the work of Christ. And that he gives me joy and peace and the world is pretty capricious about who gets what. And it encouraged me. The risen king frees you and I from a religion which is oppressive into the arms of the loving father. You know, beloved children are different from entitled children, not in what they ask for, but in their, in their disposition towards the parent. The older brother, full of duty and cynicism and the ugly side of religion and a total misunderstanding of his father, has boxed himself into a corner where he just believes he's supposed to behave and that's all there is to life. It fills him with anger. a lot of reason we're not that interested in church both because of our own older brother and because there are a few running around these halls by the way I think the barn is a lot better than a typical church with respect to this a lot of gracious people here who've been through hard life and God has given them joy anyway but I still believe you and I need to be reminded of our tendency towards religion and how toxic it is to our picture of the running father The risen King Jesus frees us from religion into the with God life, which is the arms of the running Father. Beloved children, as opposed to entitled religious children, are Easter people who believe in the power of the resurrection who are still living in a Good Friday world. So we're trusting Him among the obscene wreckage of 2017. You think I'm exaggerating? How's your family? Everybody get along? Everybody remember everybody's birthdays? Is it all hugs and sweetness and light? How about the world? How's the world doing? It's a big darn mess. Did I just say darn? I'm from Oklahoma. Let it go. But we do believe in the power of the resurrection that tells us that Jesus is king over sin and death and we put our hope and our trust in him and we notice this story and we're encouraged not only that we get to spend eternity with him but that he has purchased for you and I joy. And that joy gently, slowly, most of the time removes the toxic, natural religiousness in our being freeing us to enjoy him. Friends, we all have both sons in us. We all have the tendency to run away from God by just doing our own thing. Talk about that next week. We all have the tendency to run away from the loving father by being real dutiful. And it's toxic. So what do we do about that? We remind ourselves of the good news which is not I obey and therefore I'm loved. It's that we're loved. Our sin was a big deal. That's why Jesus went to the cross. But what he requires of us is nothing. All we need is need. We turn to him and he frees us not only into eternal life, but into joy. 
knowing that he is a father who rejoices over us with singing. Do you believe that? Because I struggle to believe that. That's Zephaniah 3.17, by the way. Believe that Jesus rejoices over you with singing? I hope so. I struggle to believe it. We have a little bit of both sons in us and we shed both of those to enjoy the freedom purchased on the cross, the power of which is made clear in the resurrection of Christ. We are both prodigals. Both kinds at the same time. So what do we do about that? We ask God for help. God, free me from my religiousness into joy. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to see with clarity a loving Father? Would you free us from our tendency towards miserable duty and into delightful sonship as sons and daughters of the true King? In your name we pray. Amen.